we enjoy the fellowship time together. It's awesome. Well, I'm glad you guys made it out this morning. We're going to be blessed because we're going to dig into God's Word, and that's always a blessing. So if you have your Bibles, if you would, we're going to pick up where we left off. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 22 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Peter writes, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, and which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. The title of my message this morning is Having a Good Conscience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to be able to be in where it's warm and, and out from where the, not out from where the snow's out, Lord. We thank you for the fact that while other churches may have canceled this morning, Lord, we've been able to stay open and, and uh, Lord, just to be here, to worship you and to be in this place today is just a blessing. So we pray, Lord, that uh, you'll, you'll speak to our hearts, Lord, we'd have open ears to receive all that you have for us this morning. We pray that you'd be glorified during this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I found a story about a mom who was trying to give her son a guilty conscience, since we're talking about consciences. It goes like this. She wrote a letter, Dear darling son and that person you married, I hope you are well. Please don't worry about me. I'm just fine considering I can't breathe or eat. The important thing is that you have a nice holiday, thousands of miles away from your ailing mother. I sent along my last $10 in this card, which I hope you'll spend on my beautiful grandchildren who I never see. God knows their mother never buys them anything nice. They look anemic in their pictures, poor thin babies. Thank you so much for the birthday flowers, dear boy. I put them in the freezer so they'll stay fresh for my grave. I know I'll need them any day, which reminds me, we buried Aunt Lucy last week. I know she died years ago, but I got to yearning for a good funeral, so Aunt Mimi and I dug her up and had the services all over again. I would have invited you, but I know that woman you live with would have never let you come. I bet she's never even watched that videotape of my hemorrhoid surgery, has she? I am still suffering. Well, son, it's time for me to drag myself to bed now. I lost my cane beating off muggers last week. But don't you worry about me. I'm also getting used to the cold since they turned my heat off. And I'm grateful because the frost in my bed numbs the constant pain. 
Now, don't you even think about sending any more money because I know you need it for those expensive family holidays you take every year, though you never come see me. Give my love to my darling grandbabies and my regards to whatever her name is, the one with the black roots who you stole screaming from my bosom. Love always your poor old mother. <laughs> Talk about trying to give yourself a guilty conscience. Man. I don't know if his conscience was affected or not, but, but when it comes to our consciences, it's been said a conscience is what hurts when all other parts feel good. It's also been said a conscience is a dog that can't, can't bite but never stops barking. Finally, I've heard it said bachelors have consciences, married men have wives. Having a good conscience. That's what Peter is talking about here. Now, we all know the famous words of Jiminy Cricket. Always let your conscience be your guide. That can be dangerous because our conscience can easily become controlled by sin and our old nature. But here Peter is speaking about a good conscience, having a good conscience where you can go to bed at night and say, I serve the Lord faithfully today. God is pleased with my life. I'm not hiding anything from him. I'm not living in any hypocrisy. I have a clear conscience. Now, why is that important? Well, because our testimony is on the line. In fact, Peter talked about this in verse 16 when he said that when people defame you as an evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. In other words, let them let there be nothing to, to defame you by. See, if you remember our last study together, Peter was writing to Christians who were experiencing tough times, difficult days. They were being brought before the authorities and persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if they were caught up in certain things that their conscience had been warning them that are wrong, but they didn't listen, their witness would be tarnished. So that's why Peter is saying, even in these dark times in which you're living in there, to shine as lights. In fact, verse 15, Peter says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. See, you can't do that if you're always living under a guilty conscience. You know, if my conscience is bugging me, then it's going to hinder whatever I do during my day. I'm going to be anxious. I'm going to be fearful. I'm going to be not, not able to sleep. Mark Twain put it this way. He says, the conscience is like a hair in the mouth. You need to deal with it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at what the Bible tells us about our conscience and, and how to have a good one. And we're going to tie this in with Second Peter chapter 3 here. Now understand, there's a difference between being conscious and having a conscience. Being conscious is what happens when you come into church and we start at the beginning of the service. Unconscious is what happens by the end of the service. Hopefully not, but... but uh, we all know to be conscious simply means that you're awake, you're aware, you're alert. About two months ago, our insurance company that, that we have with the church here, they uh, gave us monitors to place in our building, one upstairs and one downstairs, to place in, in case uh, the, the temperature of the building gets too cold, that uh, the, you know gets below a certain degree, so the pipes don't freeze. The monitors will, will connect to the Internet, then send me a text letting me know that, it's too cold in here. And we have one downstairs for the same thing. And about two weeks ago, about 3.30 in the morning, I got a text that woke me up that said, you know, that it's 50 degrees below, uh, 50 degrees here in the church. And so I responded to, well, that's our normal Sunday morning temperature in the church. But, but uh, no, I didn't say that. 
But, uh, you know, at 3.30 in the morning, when you get an alarm like that, a text like that, I mean, you're awake. I mean, I was awake. I couldn't go back to sleep. And, and, and uh, you know, it's the same way our conscience is being aware and it awakens us to what is right and what is wrong. A classic example of, of this is maybe when you're driving and, and you may be listening to music or just having a good conversation and, and kind of going with the flow of traffic until your wife says, do you know how fast you're going? You need to slow down. Now, hopefully you listen to her and you, you slow down at that point because your my, wife made aware of the fact that you were, you were, how fast you were going. But then there are times that you may be running late and you're totally aware of how fast you're going and that, that point your conscience is telling you, man, I, I better slow down, I better slow down, but you have a choice. Do I, uh, slow down? You know, do I, do I, since I break the law, do I slow down or do I rationalize it? Oh, come on, who drives this slow anymore? What's going on here? I'm just going with the flow. Is it illegal only if you get caught? You know, you may laugh, but, but what is your conscience telling you? See, our conscience is being aware and being awake, whereas having a conscience is being aware and awake to what is right and what is wrong. Now, God has built within every human being a conscience of right and wrong. In fact, Romans chapter 2, verse 14, tells us just that. When Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In other words, whether you're a believer or not, it's built in you to know right from wrong. You just, just know. It's embedded in our DNA, our, our very makeup as humans. No other animal, no other species has that characteristic. We have this, this conscience, this innate sense that there's right and wrong because we were created in the image of God. That's what our conscience is. So that the Apostle Paul tells us that we are without excuse in Romans chapter 2. Because it's the Lord who's placed that conscience inside of us and now we've been given that choice to either listen to it or to ignore it. You know, it's kind of like the idiot lights that go on in your, our cars. You know, years ago, I had a, a 1984 280ZX. It was about 15 years old when I bought it, but, man, it was cool. It had the T-roof, and, and I, I really liked the car. What was cool about the car was if you're running low on gas, if the door was open, you'd have a voice that said, running low on fuel, or right door is open, left door is open. Now, even with this nice lady saying low on fuel, and even with the idiot light flashing on and off, I would still run out of gas. Why? Because I didn't listen to her. I thought, I could just go a little bit further. And it reminds me of a story about a man who had a car just like that. Voice came on, said low on fuel. But all of the gauges were telling him that they still, he still had half a tank. So instead of listening to that voice for the next 50 miles, he unplugged the switch for the voice and kept on driving. Well, you guessed it, a few minutes later, he ran out of gas. See, the problem uh, was in the, the gauges. The gauges were wrong. In the same way, people today have problems today because they ignore the voice inside of them and they're looking at the gauges that the world puts up that are wrong. Messages that the world sends out that are just plain contrary to the Word of God. You know, I've shared this last week. I, I, I'm having a blast with my new Alexa, you know, Echo, you know, asking it questions in the weather and all that fun stuff. But go ahead and ask your Alexa on your Amazon Echo the origin of life. And she quotes the, some atheistic evolutionary article that man just came from chemicals that came out of nothing. 
Watch any secular TV show. You'll find the same thing. Look at all the magazines, all the articles. It's all follow your heart. Whatever feels good, do it. There's no right or wrong. If it feels good, don't, don't feel guilty over, over this. Or don't feel guilty over that. Listen, the gauge is wrong. Because there's only one gauge. There's only one standard. And that is the Bible. That is the Word of God. And our conscience is designed to match what is in God's Word according to what is right and what is wrong. God designed it that way. They may ask, well, what's the difference between our conscience and the voice of the Holy Spirit? Well, actually, in the Christian, they work hand in hand. Think of it this way. My conscience is the voice of the car that says, check engine. It's a check engine light. So you go to the mechanic, and he says, here's the problem. This is not working the way it was designed to. So he takes out the mechanic's book to show you the problem. Holy Spirit's the mechanic, and he uses the Word of God to convict you and tell you what your conscience was already telling you is wrong, but more than that, it tells you what to do about it. So when you discipline your children, maybe in a wrong way, perhaps out of anger, and your conscience says, that's wrong, the Holy Spirit says, you need to repent, you need to ask forgiveness, that wasn't of me. Or when your conscience tells you that that's not something you should be talking about, you're gossiping, you're saying something you shouldn't be saying, then the Holy Spirit all of a sudden brings back to your remembrance the Word of God, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. See, then the, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit mechanic is the one who uses the Word of God to confirm to you what your conscience was already telling you, what was wrong. So our conscience tells us that we ought to do right, but it doesn't tell us what is right. We are taught through, the God, through God's Word, through the Holy Spirit, what is right. Now, if you're taking notes, the Bible teaches that there are three things that can happen to our conscience that if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to work within our consciences. Number one, we're told that our conscience can become defiled. can become defiled. Look at Titus chapter 1, verse 15, up on the screen. It says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. So again, one more illustration. Our conscience is like an alarm clock that goes off when we do wrong. A defiled conscience is like putting a pillow over that alarm clock, over our ears so we don't hear it. See, that word defiled there in Titus it speaks of a window that doesn't get washed. Eventually it gets darker and darker and dirtier and dirtier until there's this film over it and you know, your kid's right on the back of it, wash me, you know, or something like that. At that point, you, you can't see out of it very clearly at all. It's a great illustration of what happens if I expose my mind to sin. My, my conscience becomes dimmer and, and dirtier and allowing less and less light to break through. The Bible study becomes uh, increasingly difficult. My heart feels heavy and dark. That's what can happen to our conscience when we ignore it. It becomes defiled. A film develops over our hearts so we don't see things clearly as we once did. Things that were black and white at one time, now they're just kind of, kind of gray. The Lord's light and love doesn't shine as brightly in our lives as it once did. There's this darkening effect that happens in our walks. And a defiled, defiled conscience leads then to the next description that the Bible gives us when we ignore our conscience, and that is our conscience can become seared. It can become seared. Look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 2. It says, Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So this is a step further. A seared conscience speaks of one that has moved to that place of being not past seeing clearly, but also past feeling. Past feeling. 
When your conscience is seared, you don't even feel conviction about the things that you once did. That film on the window has gotten so thick, it's almost like a, a sheet of ice. We all know what that's like when you get up in the morning and you get ready to go to work and you got that sheet of ice on your front windshield and no scraper is going to take that off. Well, a seared conscience can be that way. Things that 10 years ago you would have said no way to are things you're doing now that you don't even think about. It's no big deal. What happened? Your conscience has been seared. You got to the point of past feeling. No more conviction in your life at all. Now, when it gets to that point, a lot of times people begin to rationalize things. Sometimes they'll even say, well, God told me it was okay. I met people in the past that are living together outside of marriage in a sexual situation. And you ask them, why are you doing that? Are you guys, are you, aren't you Christians? Yeah, we're Christians. We go to church. They say, well, it's not sin for us. Why, why is that? Well, because God told us it was okay. Really? How did he say that? Did he say, go, my children, and fornicate? Oh, well, well, deep inside, we, we feel that God said it's okay. Let me tell you, in that case, that's where your conscience can mislead you. It can be seared. I think of that, that song from years ago, You Light Up My Life, back in the 70s. That one verse of it said, it can't be wrong when it feels so right. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. It can be wrong when it feels so right. I think of Samson. He's a, a classic example of someone with a seared conscience. Listen, Samson was no dummy. He was all brawn, but he was also brain. His downfall was he allowed his conscience to be seared. See, he, he took a Nazarite vow, a vow that basically said you would abstain from the fruit of the vine, not only alcohol, but, but grape juice, grapes, raisins. You would not touch your hair during the whole time of this vow, and you were not to be defiled by, by touching a corpse. Samson did not do so well in keeping that vow. He compromised. And because of that, we read that Delilah, you know, she's just pestering him and pestering him about the source of his strength. And each time, Samson would get closer and closer to telling Delilah the truth. Well, if you tie my hands with ropes, that, that's the source of my strength. Then it went to, well, if, if you weave the seven locks of my hair into the web of the loom, that's the source of my strength. In other words, give me dreadlocks. Still messing with his hair. Then that is finally, okay, if you cut my hair, then, then, then I could be destroyed. How could he say something so stupid? I mean, his conscience became seared. But it all started with a little compromise. Oh, what was it be? I'm going to compromise here, compromise here. And pretty soon, he's ignoring his conscience and he's just falling right for it. It's no big deal. What's it going to hurt? Just this one time I can handle it. It's not going to affect me. All the while, his conscience is saying, don't do it. Stop. Stop the direction you're going. This is not good. At that point, a seared conscience, you no longer listen. And that leads us to the third description the Bible gives when we ignore our conscience. That is, our consciences can become poisoned, evil. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, 22. We read there of a conscience that is poisoned or perverted. So it, it, it's a path. It, it, once a person moves from that place where their conscience has become defiled, then the things are cloudy, then it moves to being seared, that's passed to feeling to the point where the final step is all out perversion. The conscience has been poisoned. God speaks of this in Isaiah fifty twenty, where he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
A person with a, an evil conscience, a poison conscience, will live life marked by perverse things, ungodly or moral things, which exactly is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 and 2. That happens to men or women who ignore what God has built into them. They're given over to all sorts of immorality and perversity to do those things that are unnatural. And boy, don't we see that in our culture today, in our society today, a culture that's con- that this consciousness has become poisoned and evil. So this brings us all back to our text this morning. And Peter telling us in verse 16, we're to have a good conscience. He says that so when people speak evil of you and defame you as evildoers, those who revile you, your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, there's another problem with our consciences. Because sometimes, you know, I I know I've blown it. I know I'm a sinner. My conscience then can haunt me. Satan, the Bible describes as the accuser of the brethren, and he always likes to bring up our, our past failings. And although I'm not compromising or ignoring the voice of my conscience as it relates to sin, maybe I'm crippled by my conscience because of my, my past feelings, because of what I've done in the past. And even though God has forgiven me, I can't get past that, and, and I feel not fit to be used by God. How do I deal with that? Well, Peter gives us the answer here. Three things in verses 18 through 22. I don't need to be beaten down or crippled by my past. I can have a good conscience because of three things. Number one, it's not what I do, but what Jesus did. Number two, it's not who I am, but where I am at that matters. And number three, it's where Christ is at presently. Number one, it's not what I do, but what Christ did that matters. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. I love that. Christ suffered once for the sins and the just for the unjust. That was us. We were the unjust. Jesus is the just. The purpose of the cross was to put away our sin, which has separated us from God. The effect of sin has always been alienation from God. See, God has created us in the beginning for fellowship. He wanted you to be one with Him. But a holy and pure righteous God cannot be a part of sin. It's inconsistent with the nature of God. So man fell into sin. As a result, lost fellowship with God. The purposes of God was thwarted by sinful man. So in order that man might have fellowship with God, that these purposes might be restored, Jesus suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust, as Peter says here, that he might bring us to God. That he might wash you and I clean, cleanse us from all of our sin, in order that we might have the purposes of God accomplished in our life, that fellowship with God. So that we don't have to live in the past. We don't have to to be haunted by our past failings and past failures or plagued by the guilt from the past. Even though Satan is so good at reminding us of them, Jesus took care of them. Let me say this. When Jesus suffered on the cross, did he suffer for only the sins that we committed before we were saved? No way. Not at all. He suffered for all of our sins. He took the place for us upon that cross before we were even born. So he he paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. That's why he said from the cross, it is finished. In other words, paid in full. So that now the life I live is now justified through Jesus Christ, just as if I've never sinned. See, I can truly have a good conscience if I understand what Jesus did for me at Calvary. He paid the price completely. All my sins were nailed to the cross. Now they're forgiven and forgotten. That's what Psalm 103 verse 12 says. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Or Hebrews 8:12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds 
I will remember no more. So if the Lord is saying he's not going to remember your sins, he's not going to remember your, your lawless deeds because you've been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ and we have to answer to him, then why on earth do we keep bringing up our sins over and over and over again to the Lord? He's already forgiven us. Why do you punish yourself for no reason at all? Because you're not believing God. You're not believing what God has said. Listen, a lot of people are hung up by guilt today, and rightfully so, because people feel guilty because they are guilty. We're all sinners. But the answer isn't to, to, to try and remove that guilt through psychoanalysis or, or, or counseling sessions and spending thousands of dollars trying to work through your guilt. You don't need to do that. You just look to Jesus and believe what the Bible says. He paid the price for your sin. And if we confess our sins, He's faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Look to Jesus. At least at number two, the second reason we can have a good conscience is because of where we have been placed. It's not who I am, but where I am that matters. Look at verse 19 through 21. By whom also we went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. There's also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let me say this. Verse 19 and 20 here are some of the most difficult verses in all the Bible. They're the, the two most debated verses in the New Testament. So skipping down to verse 22, we read, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Let me give you the best understanding of these verses. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. But that's okay. Because these verses aren't given to us for issues of doctrine. It's not doctrine here. Rather, they're matters of principle and given to us for the purpose of an illustration. Peter is using these, this, this for an illustration. With that said, there are two things in these verses that bring confusion with two different answers. The question is, what did Jesus preach and who did Jesus preach it to? Look again at verse 19 and 20. He went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Now, to understand this, that word preached there, it's interesting because it's different than the word that's most, useful, most commonly used for the word preached. The common word is it means to preach the gospel. This word uh, simply means to proclaim the truth. So there's two ways that I've found to understand this. Number one, there are those who say that these verses are speaking of Christ openly proclaiming his victory over the spirits in prison in verse 19. That is those demonic spirits who were behind all the corruption that went on in Noah's day prior to the flood. Now we're going to look at more into this when we get into 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Let me read what that says. It says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. We're going to look at this more in depth when we get to that. But here, I believe that what it's saying is that we were the Jesus one and preached to the spirits in prison. In other words, he proclaimed final victory over the principalities and powers. No longer will they have control over man. God's spirit will now dwell within people in power and in strength. Now, secondly, in context, Peter has been talking to us about the finished work of the cross, what Christ did for us upon the cross. Our sins have been forgiven. Well, Peter takes it to the next step. 
Once our sins have been forgiven through what Jesus did on the cross, we are now placed in him. We are protected. We are safe just as Noah was in the ark. See, what we do know is this. Prior to the resurrection, the, the place, there was a place called Hades, and it was divided into two sides. And according to Luke chapter 16 and the story of Lazarus and the rich, rich man, one side was called Abraham's bosom or paradise. It was a place where the, the, those that believed in God prior to Jesus on the earth, those who sought to live their lives for God in faith, that's where they were in that place after they died. We know on the other side of that place, in Hades, is a place of torment. Remember that the, the rich man was there. He was hot. He was thirsty. He was being tormented. Now, Paul says something interesting in Ephesians 4.8. Speaking of Jesus, he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? So I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus descended into Hades, and led those who were in paradise out of Abraham's bosom into the presence of God. So Jesus, as Peter says, proclaimed the truth to them, to Noah and to David and to Samuel and all those who died in faith before Christ. And from Adam to the thief of the cross, they were taken out of Hades, out of that compartment, that, that paradise, and got into heaven. Jesus ascended, leading captivity captive. Every one of them was brought into the presence of God, their faith finally being fulfilled. That's why today paradise is no longer described as being in the lower parts of the earth. Today it is in heaven. Why Paul would say to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul spoke about the Corinthians, about how he was caught up into paradise in 2 Corinthians 12.4. So Jesus said to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2.7, he said, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So that's the second understanding of this verse. Either it was to the, to the demonic spirits proclaiming authority and, and victory over them, or it was to those that have died before Christ ushering them into heaven. Either way, I think the illustration is clear, even though the doctrine might not be. I can have a clear conscience, even though I have, I have a shady past, because I've been placed in Christ. I've been placed just like Noah was in the ark in Christ. Peter says in verse 20, like the ark that was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So because of what Jesus Christ has done, we're, we're safe. Safe from the enemy, safe from the principalities and powers, and safe from God's judgment and wrath. And because just like the rain came down in judgment upon the world, and Noah was protected because he was in the ark, when God's wrath, wrath comes, we're going to be protected. You know what that tells me? It tells me I'm protected from the accusations from the enemy as well. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So when the, the devil comes knocking at your door and, and tries to condemn you, say, take a hike. Take a hike. 1 John three twenty four. if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Now there's one more passage that is misunderstood as well, and that's verse 21, talking about baptism. It says, there is therefore also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter actually explains what he's talking about here. And, and, and he says, I'm not talking about water baptism being necessary for salvation. It's not water baptism that saves us, he says, but it's an answer of a good conscience towards God. See, baptism is just an outward sign of an inward doing. We've talked about this before. Peter wasn't talking about baptism. He's talking about Jesus' death. 
He's making reference to, to Jesus' baptism into death. In fact, Jesus said this in Luke 12:50, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. In other words, Jesus paved the way for us. And besides, Paul said he didn't not come to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He didn't know if he baptized anybody with just Gaius and, and Crispus. Now, let me say this. I do believe that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ should be baptized in water. I definitely believe in water baptism. I, I personally believe in water baptism by full immersion. I do believe that water baptism by full immersion is only a symbol of the work of the Spirit that has gone on in your heart. The old man being dead, new man rising up out of the water, walking in Christ. But if it hasn't happened in my heart, it cannot happen in the ritual. See, the ritual itself cannot save me. In other words, baptism isn't a condition for salvation, but a proclamation of having my sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter says, baptism doesn't save us, but it's an answer of a good conscience towards God. It's your conscience responding to God's invitation. So we're back to the conscience again. That brings us to our final point. I can have a good conscience because it's where Jesus is at presently through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. Peter says, Who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. So if you tie this all together and you go through and you read these verses again, I believe you'll see that what it's saying is Christ died and is brought safely through death, just like Noah's family was brought safely through the flood, and just like we will be brought safely home when it's our time. Until then, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and all power and authority make an intercession for us, Paul tells us in Romans 8.34. The enemy, the accuser, man, he's bringing those accusations, but our Savior's right there, who's making intercession. And when the, you know, when the devil comes and says, oh, Tom did this and Tom did that to our father, Jesus turns to his father and says, yeah, but I paid for his sins. He's forgiven. Why is that? Because Jesus rose again from the grave. That validates all he has said and all that he's done. That means that I'm safe and secure in him. That's what, what Hebrews 4.14 says, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Finally, this goes back to verse 15 and 16. Look at verse 15 and 16 again. This ties it all in together. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear, having a good conscience that when they defame those evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. As we close, how can I keep a pure conscience? What can I do to make sure my, my conscience is pure? Let me give you four ways, and then we're going to close. Number one, confess and forsake all known sin. Examine your, your guilt feelings in light of the Word of God. Is there anything you are presently doing that Scripture is warning you of? It was Martin Luther who said, My conscience is captive to the Word of God. The objective is to saturate our consciences so much with, with biblical teaching and educate our conscience so it's acting in prop, with proper information. We need to educate our conscience. Acknowledge all sin. If there's something that the Bible clearly teaches against you, you need to stop from doing it. Second Timothy 2.22, we're told, Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. So, once identified sin, we need to confess it, deal with it, and turn from it. Number two, in order to have a pure conscience... Ask forgiveness and be reconciled to anyone you have wronged, if possible. 
Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5.23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So seek reconciliation. Now I added two words. If possible. Because it's not always possible. Some people, they just, they're just they going to want to stay mad at you. And you can be nice, you can be angry, you can be any way you want, and they're just going to want to be mad at you no matter what. And they have no cause for it at all, but, but you, can't, you can't make things right with them. But you need to go and make the effort anyway. And say, listen, if I've offended you, if I've done something wrong, please share with me what it is, and I am so sorry. Or, or just maybe just say, I believe I've done something wrong, and I apologize, I repent, I'm sorry, I want to be reconciled with you. So, so ask forgiveness and be reconciled to anyone you've wronged. Number three, if possible, make restitution. Make restitution. Try and you know, right the wrong. In Numbers chapter 5, the Lord says, Give the following instruction to the people of Israel. If any of the people, men or women, betray the Lord by doing wrong to another person, they are guilty. They must confess their sin and make full restitution for what they've done, adding an additional 20% and returning it to the person who was wrong. You go, oh, man. 20%, well, it just isn't saying I'm sorry, good enough. I mean, this is what the Bible says. I mean, I, I mean, I rip them off, I have to pay them back also? Listen, restitution is not only an Old Testament concept, it's a New Testament as well. I mean, I think of the story of Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, the, the wee little man, the wee little man was he? He climbed up in a tree and Jesus said, hey, come on down, I want you to have dinner with me. And he was a, he was a tax collector, worked for Rome. He overtaxed the people there and one day when Jesus saw that, you know, they had the meal together, they spent time together, and Zacchaeus put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he said this, Lord, Lord, I will give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I will restore it fourfold. Now Jesus didn't say, oh, you don't have to go to that extreme, you know, I mean, you're forgiven, don't, don't, don't go overboard, come on. No, he said this, today salvation has come to the house because he's also the son of Abraham. No, he's doing the right thing. He's making restitution. Listen, if you stole something from someone, and even maybe it was before you got saved, give it back to them. Well, what if I sold it? Well, then buy a new one and give it back to them. Listen, if you've slandered someone, if you've said untrue things about them, God's Holy Spirit has convicted you, and you say, well, I told them I was sorry, good. How about going to the people that you slander them to and ask for forgiveness for them and, and, and make things right. Tell them the truth about the person. I was wrong. I gave you false information. Here's the truth. Try to undo the wrong that you've done. Well, that might be embarrassing. I, I said, I'm sorry. Isn't that enough? Yeah, it's enough for you to be forgiven by God. But then you want to try and go out and undo the damage that you have done. Finally, number four, don't procrastinate in clearing your wounded conscience. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. If God's showing you that something is wrong, don't go, oh, this will go away. I won't feel this bad in the morning. No, some people think they can just put off the guilt, you know, and, and somehow their conscience is just going to get cleared up. It's not going to happen. Think of Joseph. Remember that his brother sold him into slavery and uh, this unconfessed sin ate at them day after day, week after week, month after year after year, 20 years it ate at them. This infested until it was properly confessed. Guilt wasn't the problem. Unconfessed sin was a problem. When they dealt with the root of the problem, the symptoms took care of themselves. The guilt went away once the sin was acknowledged. Paul said that he always did his best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before men. That should be our objective as well. Don't put it off. Maybe God has spoken to you this morning. 
Maybe your conscience has been troubling you lately. You know, you've done something that you know you shouldn't have done. Instead of trying to ignore it, instead of trying to, to, to shove it, put it down, you need to listen and examine what it is in light of the Word of God. And if there's something that you've done, God is only awakening you to this so that you can take action. Acknowledge your sin and turn from it. Maybe you've crossed the line. Maybe you've done something you know that you shouldn't have done. Maybe you're actively involved in some practice or some lifestyle you know was sin before God and your conscience has been bugging you lately. And you come in and you go, why on earth are you talking about this this morning, Pastor Tom? It's not me. It's God who's, who's knocking at your conscience and saying, you need to deal with the air in your life today, this morning, now. But see, that's the good news. The good news is the conscience is knocking on your heart. God is knocking on your heart and you're listening to it. It would be bad if you, if you didn't hear anything at all. But the warning lights are on. So do something about it this morning. Confess it to God and God will give you the grace and He'll give you the forgiveness to give you that clean and good conscience. Listen, our testimony relies on it. Let's get right before God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time this morning, Lord. Lord, we pray for all of us, Lord, two things. Uh, number one, God, if we have unconfessed sin in our life, if we've been convicted of an area in our lives and we've just been ignoring it and not dealing with it, Lord, no matter what it is, Lord, we pray that this morning we would put a stop to that. We would make things right. We would confess it, Lord, if it's sin to you. If we've offended someone, Lord, that we would ask for forgiveness from them we would seek to make things right, Lord. Father, give us a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit. Help us to know your word so that we know right from wrong. And Father, help us to not put off getting right with you. And secondly, Lord, uh, there might be uh, those of us here that have been struggled with with a guilty conscience from our past. And Lord, you've forgiven us. You've washed us clean as white as snow. You put our sin as far as the east as the west from us, but we keep bringing it back up over and over and over again. And we're living a defeated life, guilty over this sin that where you have forgiven us. Help us, Lord, to leave that at the foot of the cross and never look back at it again. Lord, help us to, to, to walk in that forgiveness and in that grace and not in condemnation. As your word says, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Help us to walk that way, Lord God. We thank you for our time this morning, Lord. We pray that you give us safe travels home in this weather and we give you all the glory and honor for it. We thank you for your, just being a great God who loves us and has blessed us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.